0: Hello, welcome to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, Marie Mja. I really hope you're doing well. You can feel on my voice. I am really excited, totally excited. Today is a great day. The first day in history to have a black woman in the White House. Just imagine this, Kamala Harris is now the United States first black woman vice president. Can you imagine? There are so many possibilities in this world. Young women and girls growing up across the world can dream. They can think about the possibilities that can happen. I am so honored and privileged to be alive. This is a great day for humanity. and it It's so wonderful to witness, really it is. Thank you so much for supporting I Am The Code. We are so excited and celebrating like everyone else. I want to thank you personally for supporting I Am The Code for donating and listening to the podcasts. We are absolutely grateful. You know, one of the things I was saying to my friend yesterday is that 2021 will become an amazing year. I hope, really sincerely, it's going to be good for all of us. We are going big with Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. They know the weight right now on their shoulders. And I really hope that they will make a difference in the lives of so many, many people. I also have the feeling that we're going to be united, working together for a better world. It is time for us to come together, as Joe Biden said, and work and make a difference. For many, many years, we've been working in silos and just thinking about the minority. We need to start thinking about everyone. So listen to the podcast and share it with your friend if you can. My guest this week knows all about impact and inclusion. His name is Dave Duarte. He's a South African-born facilitator and a speaker. He has been working on digital trends. On marketing and leadership and making sure that we are running campaigns that are inclusive but also the campaigns that have really impacts across the world some of his campaigns have reached billions of people and in 50 countries so really please check him out his name is Dave Duarte I really hope you enjoy my conversation because he's an amazing guy and I will see you on the other side oh my god you have no idea who I have right now on this podcast from South Africa, Dave Duart.
1: Dave, how are you doing? I'm super well and especially happy because I'm speaking with you. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: <laughs> I'm really excited to have you on the on the podcast. You
1: have no idea. amen oh man, I'm touched. Thank you. So um, what are we talking about today?
0: Let me tell you why I invited you. You know, I always say to people why I invite them on the podcast. And I think... Over the years, I'm so impressed with the work you've been doing uh, in in creating impact campaigns. But also, you know, as both uh, both of us are young globalists from the World Academic Forum, I always like your pragmatism. You know, the fact that you're always pragmatic. You know, you're very kind to people, very helpful. And um, and I just wanted the boys and girls to listen. You know, to to what you have to say. And the other thing I think I wanted to invite you uh, on the podcast is because. You are very present, you know. I remember at the beginning of COVID nineteen. I was talking to you about Zoom, and you said to me, "You know, I'm gonna be off Zoom right now. <laughs> I'm gonna sit down. I'm gonna chill. No Zoom. I just liked that approach." So, anyway, thank you so much for coming to the I'm the Code podcast. Welcome.
1: uh thank you, Maria. Well, I, what I wanted to say is it's it's a mutual appreciation society because. I think that there's so much around what you just understand that is fundamental to my work. You've grown I am the code from this idea that I remember in the early days when you seeded it. Uh, You know, a lot of people can have ideas, but you made it happen. And I, I just remember your first year doing it. It was like nothing I have ever seen. I, I don't know. I don't know how many air miles you got, but I saw you travelling around the world, telling the story, using your own life experience to bring people on board and really mobilise heavy hitters to support uh, to support young girls to learn an essential life skill. And I'm reminded again and again how much leadership matters and how much storytelling matters. And I think that it's something that you represent so powerfully and that you do so powerfully. So thank you.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much. This is going to be an amazing podcast because we have so much to say. But let me ask you, how have you been coping with lockdown? You know, I know that the last year was really hard for everyone.
1: There's so many levels to that answer. And I think a lot of people are going to have different stories. So the answer is it's been for better and for worse in many ways. So on the worst side, same as everyone, you know, I've, I know people that have been impacted by COVID, that have struggled with their health. We've had anxiety for our loved ones and that's been really bad. On the other hand, you know, I've seen friends struggle with their businesses also, which which is also awful because financial pressure is real. And on the other hand, you uh, I really do believe that the world did need a great reset of sorts. We needed to slow down. We needed to look at where we were going, uh, particularly as someone that cares about uh, the environment. Uh, We were carrying on like there's no tomorrow we're traveling too much Don't we were it. traveling too much no for real and that was actually one of the things on a personal level that i was actually really grateful for uh besides the amount of time i was spending on aeroplanes and i know that you can relate it was also every day how often i was spending in ubers i wasn't even thinking about yes, it ubers. just boomerang around <laughs> everywhere because because you can work in the back seat you know like so you just sit there and you think that you're productive, zipping around everywhere, you know, never having home-cooked food. um, Mm. And I just, it made me slow down. I also had a fancy office. Oh, totally, totally, totally. And I think just everything for me, it was just like, take a pause, slow down. And my my business has really benefited from that. My productivity Mm. has benefited from that. My peace of mind has benefited from that. So in that way, it's been really good.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And so uh, I know we're calling, you are in South Africa right now. So can you just tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up? I know you are South African. Do you mind just telling our Hmm. girls and boys about your background?
1: Yes, for sure. So I I grew up in Johannesburg, which is uh, the, the biggest city, like business city in South Africa and uh, i was born into a wealthy family um my father and mother owned hotels and uh, they worked in the hospitality industry and so i went to i went to some really good schools uh, initially but then when i was in junior school my father developed mental illness uh, like and we didn't know we didn't know anything about mental illness and uh, essentially uh, dragged us through a very very hard time he lost everything that he had he made he got into business with the wrong people you know and he it's amazing how quickly it can all unravel and uh you know by the time uh i was in high school there was pretty much nothing left you know we had literally like uh it was quite regular to not make it to the end of the month because we wouldn't pay our bills and stuff like that and and um, it, it was just very interesting because I was still very privileged. I was still going to a private school. And yet, because of the stark contrast to having more than enough, to having this perception that we don't have nearly enough, you know, like gone with the nice cars and that kind of thing, <laughs> you know, it was um, diminished circumstances, so to speak. I found that incredibly stressful. And we blamed my father. And uh, that that was the defining kind of, broad narrative of my childhood, uh, those Mm. two things. And um, I realized how real financial stress is and how it can tear people apart. Yes. And and there's also ups and downs because of that. So the the downside was the constant family pressure. My parents ended up getting divorced and um, that just wasn't a lovely time at all. And on the upside, I was forced to become an entrepreneur in high school, which I never would have done <laughs> otherwise, basically so that I could have pocket money to go and do what the other rich kids that I was at school with uh, were doing, you know, hanging out at shopping malls and that kind of thing. You know, I didn't get pocket money to do that. So I had to do my own hustle. So ups mm-hmm. and downs. And, In um, yeah, in uh, after I left high school, I moved to Cape Town and um, I – my side hustle which was organizing parties um became a, became a thing and i actually built my career on that initially organizing parties at nightclubs and restaurants and that kind of thing and i yeah i mean we can talk about how that became a career move <laughs> later but yeah that was that was the move oh that my god move.
0: you know i didn't know that do you have any siblings
1: i do i do i've got a wonderful sister uh, who is 10 years older than me um who has been a collaborator uh, for like 19 years in oh, business, wow. and mm-hmm. uh, she lives up the road from me, and we see each other uh, almost every day, and we're incredibly close. Oh. And she is, um, yeah, she's very, she's very creative, and I'm, an I'm, I'm immensely grateful for her.
0: That's so nice. You know, it's so fascinating what you said about um, siblings and money and uh, and power. You know, in our generation, um, you know, our parents really didn't know anything about financial literacy, right? Uh, also, they didn't take care of the health, and that's why I'm so impressed with the way you take care of your health.
1: Well, look, there, once again, there's a story behind everything. You're right. I, you know, my 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 health philosophy is actually not to be, uh, you know, not to be a men's health cover model, um, because I feel like that's it's too extreme. I I I look at my energy levels, and it's very much about fundamentals. So I eat a plant-based diet. So I'm vegan uh, in in my eating, um, and that's for environmental reasons. Um, um, I don't drink, but that was only because I overdid drinking because I used to organize parties. Um, I got to sleep at a regular time, but that's also, once again, because I overdid it in my in my early 20s. And I just realized, you know, the damage that you can do. And if you don't have a healthy, robust body, you can't think well. And my job, which is to a large extent being a, a strategist, requires me to be creative. And for the best creativity, I think you need to be fresh. And it also makes me feel spiritually connected, not to feel messy in my body. But I believe that in everything, I think that having a, a gentle approach to the body, unless you are, as I said, a professional athlete or a influencer or something like that, I think that we could all do it a little Little more kindness towards ourselves. I think not everyone needs to have a six pack, for example. No.
0: <laughs> but let me just put this on the record. You are a handsome man and I'm so happy that you're looking after yourself. So let's just put that on the ah! I'm sure your wife is you looking cry. after her very well. <laughs> so okay, let me ask you a few more questions. You know, um I think it's important what you said about, you know, looking after strategies and, and helping businesses, you know, to have a very good communication uh, you know, strategy. But what has led you to the world of innovation? and technology? Because I know you also love tech and
1: innovation, right? Mm, I'm a a bit obsessed with tech and innovation. The answer to that is, in short, the honest answer is it's opportunistic because I just feel like in this moment in history, I felt that the one thing that was different, the thing that was rewriting history is and was technology. And I, I, I learned that so I was kind of thinking about my career. I had I, As I said, this was the, the moment of career pivot for me. I started organizing these nightclub parties and events uh, when I was like 18 or 19 years old. And by the time I was like 23, 24, you know, I was doing it using uh, SMSs and that kind of SMSs were the main thing. And I needed to organize those names on spreadsheets and that kind of thing. And that's not really technological, so to speak, but um, it is working with databases in a sense. And when I got my first office job, I was really lucky to have a boss in 2005 who suggested that I look into the world of blogging and social media. And this is the thing, I think that for young people, opportunities come up quite often. You need to be prepared to jump on that opportunity and um, you know, the, my boss could have made that suggestion. And if I wasn't interested, I, I could have done it half-heartedly, or maybe I would have said I wasn't that interested, but he said it. And I, and I, in my back of my head, I was looking for any way to distinguish myself. And he said, look into blogging. And I, I looked into it and I saw that this was an emerging field. And I, th- Myself into it with both feet and nowadays blogging and social media isn't, isn't what we would call technology but at the time it was
0: you are really part of the first generation in south africa that really started blogging right
1: i remember that long time yeah ago. yeah yeah yeah. yeah. And, and that's i think we first got connected it must have been like 15 plus years ago because long time you were ago. also in long terms ago, of it, like yeah. there's a, a kind of african um african blogging community yeah, and you also yeah, yeah 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 in short it was strategic advantage i hopped onto it i grabbed the opportunity with both hands Mm -hmm. And I just realized that most of the freshest, most exciting opportunities and stories were emerging as a result of technology. And it becomes a fluency. So you start learning. Once you start learning about technology, you kind of get hooked on it and you realize how much it's changing. And so many of the things in our world that make us feel anxious can be addressed at least to some extent through technology. And that's everything from uh, environmental issues, cleaning up litter, uh, saving energy and fuel, to dealing with racism and inequality. There's uh, algorithms that can be rewritten. There's uh, technology and apps that, that can be built. Uh, you know, there's um, uh, hardware uh, that that can be developed to address many of these issues. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an orientation in the world that there's a way to scale change. And that's what I get so excited about by technology. And, I mean, absolutely. And, and it's because it means hope for me, in short.
0: Yeah, no, I, I do agree. That led me to the, the current work you do, and you, you've been actually doing for a very long time now. You are a communication strategist and a, and a story maker. You help businesses across the world to communicate well and strategically. What is, what is your job look like? Why do we need people like you uh, right now?
1: So to take it down, I mean, I think that if you look at democracy itself, fundamentally it's uh, donald trump has shown us this it's an attention economy it's if you look at brexit if you look at at the response to the coronavirus uh, and the disinformation pandemic you know where some people based on a certain set of information will choose to wear masks and other people based on a different set of information will choose not to wear masks the information and the stories that we get exposed to on a day-to-day basis Don't just shape our perceptions, they shape our actions and our choices, and that has a broader impact on the world. And I believe that those stories that we tell inform everything from what we choose to invest in, who we choose to elect. And so that's why I chose to do this work, because I feel like you're going to the root of consciousness, Every day, uh, you know, we wake up in the morning and we open our eyes or we open our ears and we have this thing called consciousness and that consciousness is mediated through our environment. It's through uh, when we open our smartphone, it's when we walk down the road and we see billboards, it's through the conversations that we have about current affairs by our friends and, and where they have picked that up, whether it's on TV or radio or podcasts or news media. And communication strategy is informing those public narratives. And that's my job. And in particular, I'm very interested in evidence-based communications and making evidence-based and scientifically oriented communications more interesting. And I have a kind of progressive outlook. you know. So I'm looking at um, uh, brands with purpose and organizations that are working for uh, inclusivity um, and justice.
0: It's really fascinating what you said. You, you are right. You know, I think waking up every single morning, hearing and listening. And I like the fact you combine it with the kind of like consciousness, you know, really being who we are. Um, and then so I also saw you support businesses and, and create um, impact campaigns. Do you have any stories you can tell us about, you know, how do you bring these narratives and this communication to create something really powerful? I know you've been doing this for quite a long time. And how do you help your clients mm. as well?
1: Well, um, I helped launch the Internet for All movement that's led to governments in South Africa investing in rural internet access um, for millions of South Africans. Um, and President Kagame also took up the flag and uh, LC's expanded that several other places around the continent. And that was driven by getting a critical mass of young people to raise their voices and combining those thousands of voices with a well-placed facilitator like Elsie, who's got access to government ministers and so on. I've I've worked with uh, people like Lewis Pugh. uh, We used his story to facilitate the creation of the largest uh, naturally protected area on the planet. Uh, But I've also worked with very small operations, a group of farmers, uh, very small-scale and micro-farmers in my hometown, in Cape Town, um, to prevent their land being taken over by property developers. Uh, you know, just defending their rights to grow organic vegetables in their space, to care, take care of themselves and to create uh, well-beings for their communities and also protect this very precious uh, area of land. And there, there is many, many more that I could share. And those are just some ones that come to mind. But the essence of it, in mm-hmm. short, in terms of what we do, is um, that we work with uh, – Firstly, narrative-driven communications. We've got to work hard to understand not just an issue, but what does the issue hinge on, and that's usually some some unresolved conflict. So um, stories are all about are, are always about conflict, even if it's a romance story. It's something that needs to be overcome. So there's the struggle to resolution, and you've got to understand that you know that that change is the soul of the story, and. If you can work hard, and this is it's kind of going slow to go fast, you have conversations and you understand the various perspectives that people bring to an issue. And very often you realize that you know if you've got two competing sides in an argument, there's some things that people will never agree on. But if you listen, and if you carry on speaking, and if you carry on engaging, you'll find that there's a few things that they can agree on that are important. And you'll find that there's some supporting arguments around those points that are a little bit easier to win. And if you can find those hinge moments, you can build a campaign for change around those. And then you can use social media, not just to put out a message, but to bring on board supporters for that message. So that's what we call story making. It's narrative, what's What's the story? um it's content you turn that into videos and posts and press releases and that kind of thing and then the third thing is networks who are the people that would care enough about this to get involved and who are the people that we need to reach that can take decisions and actions uh, that are substantive enough to move the issues so those are those are the three things that we work with and i find it endlessly fascinating
0: it is fascinating. You know why it's fascinating? Because I actually, when I was doing your research, I know you because you're my friend, but I was I was really trying to understand, you know, more behind the work you do. And I came across the word story maker. I, I hear the word storyteller, but the word uh, story maker really fascinated me. You know, story making is like what we're doing right now. Because the girls in Kakumaru Fiji Camp, the young girls I work with, they have stories, they're storytellers, but we don't have people that actually help them make their stories, meaning writing it yes. in content. And yes. that's why I am so fascinated in talking to you. But but how would you gauge the success of communication strategy? Is this with story making, storytelling? And can you help us understand it a little bit more?
1: Yeah. Well, um look, first the first measure of success is that it's uh, of communications is that it has been received as intended. So, uh, this is the first thing that I learned, and this is like pre-digital fundamentals of communications. So, just because I have said something, it doesn't mean that you've understood what I'm saying in the way that I intended it to be, intended it to be meant. So, the, this is why I emphasize the importance of conversation. So, uh, that, that's the first thing, is understanding that communications isn't just about saying something, which is what you, you might call storytelling, um, communications is saying something in a way that it is received. So it's a two-way thing. The receiver of the story also has a role to play, an active role in interpreting and understanding it. And so the role of the communicator is expressing the message uh in a way that it's going to be received and understood uh, by the correct audience, in a way that they are going to understand and care about enough to act on. So, so that's the first thing: it's targeting the right people, it's framing the message in a way that it's going to that it's going to be adopted and responded to in the right way. And then you have to you can't just communicate information; you need to layer in meaning, which for so many people is story. You need to provide context around it. So so there's that. And that's that, for me, the only way that you can do that, you can't do it, generally speaking, in one shot. You need to communicate the same thing over and over and over again. And so there, we've got a whole range of measures uh, that we can test. Have they understood it? Do they remember it? How do they feel about it? Because there's a big emotional component. And then you can measure behavioral change. And digitally, we've got things like frequency, how often did so we've got reach, how many people did we reach with the message? It's one dimension um, uh, of it. Uh, impressions. Uh, so how many times did they see it? And that you can relate as uh, you know frequency over time. So how often did they see this thing? And then we can have things like click-throughs, downloads, signatures, purchases, event attendances. So there's usually uh, there's a kind of hierarchy of outcomes of any communications. For me, the ultimate of which is action. But we often can't measure the action sometimes the action is months or years removed from the point at which you start the campaign we've also got to fall in love with um the soft metrics the the kind of general sense that culture is changing through our involvement in it you know which is measured by in digital mm. terms our following our response rate our engagement rate uh media pickup and that kind of thing your communications is a patient's art uh, you know I, I talk about three levels of communications bonfires wildfires and fireworks and uh, fireworks are those big moments that all brands and organisations love. You know, it's it's the deviest, you know, it's election day or it's launch day, and you put everything behind it, and everyone sees it and it's spectacular, and you trend. Uh, but you can't do those all of the time. But you'll exhaust yourself and your community. So you plan plan those, you know, four times a year, six times a year, once a year, once every four years, with someone like the Olympics or something or uh, a political organization. So those are the fireworks. Released also another form of political fireworks. Uh, But then you've got bonfires, which, uh, for me, about the essence of a community and a bonfire exchange is: you think about a group of people sitting around a bonfire. You know, it's mutual exchange. It's joining a conversation. It's being an active contributor. And the big thing there is consistency. If you don't keep feeding the bonfire with conversations, if you're not staying current and relevant, if you're not culturally attuned, the bonfire will die mm-hmm. down. Um, And so that act of simply showing up over time and learning from people's interaction, like understanding the the communication, if you don't have that in the digital edge, you're dead. Mm -hmm. And then the last one uh, is wildfires, which I think is the other thing that a lot of brands and communicators hope and wish for, which is you drop a piece of content onto the internet and it just spreads like (laughs) crazy. And everyone talks about it, but uh, what Google has shown again and again is that that's wildfire content. It doesn't come without context. It, It comes from people understanding the cultural conversation. It comes from people that have typically practiced their art and craft extensively, and they can frame a message that's at once surprising. It's not like something that people have seen before. Beautifully timed and very relevant to the world mm. at large, and then you've got to get it in front of the right people. And if you don't have credibility, oftentimes you're going to have a much harder time making sure that those things do go wildfire. And and that's it's always the roll of a dice, but that's why I say it's a patient's art. Uh, you know, it's uh, we don't like to talk enough about the the role of luck uh, in, in technology, and I think that luck is underrated.
0: I love it. I love it. The bonfire is like my favorite part. I did. I didn't know that before, but you know, it does remind me as as African sitting down and having conversation, right? You know, you know, you know, people. It's, it, that I love that. I've just wrote. I've just um, had it on my notes. Bonfire. Oh my god. I, I had that. That's Wildfire lovely. and fireworks.
1: <laughs> Thank you. And I also, but there's. This is just an example this is a metaphor and our brain thinks in metaphors and understands things in stories so uh, i love that metaphor I someone mentioned it to me i was at, i was doing a workshop in mauritius and one of the attendees said they'd read it somewhere online they said oh it's bonfires and fireworks um, and and it just stuck in my head and I just developed this thing and I added wildfires to it. And I don't know who came up with the original thing, but anyway, i really built on it and made it my own because we love these visual metaphors.
0: No, 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 it's absolutely amazing. So, the, you know, the purpose of a communication strategy is to reach, as you said, you know, as, as much as you can to reach your target audience and, you know, all of that. But do you think... With the era of social media and Facebook and all of this information, like we are constantly bombarded with information. Do you think we are reaching uh, the marginalized communities, the people who we actually should reach? Do you think we're reaching them?
1: Mm, wow, wow, what a great question. Um, in some cases, yes. But I mean, when you talk about marginalized communities, not everyone is, is, is very active online. Uh, and in some cases, you know, even, even if you assume the marginalized communities are online, you know, the message needs to be framed in a way that's accessible to them. So my, my housekeeper came to me this morning and she asked if it's true that the South African president has joined the Illuminati. And I said to her, what do you mean? And she said, no, she's on a chat group and they're saying that the South African president says not enough people have died of coronavirus yet. And she was worried and and uh, she said because if that's the case then you know i'm going to miss the days of zuma the the previous president and um, who isn't isn't that popular in south africa right now um and she's very connected so she's got full access to our home wi-fi and she's got a great smartphone and she's got internet at home um but the communities that she's engaged with are responding to what's clearly a conspiracy theory, and I thought this is this is part of the challenge: is that um, she's got a very important role to play, as we all do, as a citizen in a democracy. And the challenge these days is, thanks to chat groups and so on, is that whispers spread faster than shouts. So if you can whisper something that sounds conspiratorially true and play into people's Instinct uh, of a sense of injustice or unfairness, unfairness in the world, which is there. Um, you, you can you can spread disinformation faster than information, and in that way, yes, uh, marginalised communities are being reached. Um, But I think that the mainstream media, um, if you want to call it that, uh, and civil society has a lot of work to do in terms of um, making the news interesting, engaging and actionable. In other words, making sure that you go beyond saying something to making sure that it is received. So... Yeah, that's uh, what, what do you think I'd love to know your perspective on this I mean you you work directly with uh, with marginalized communities and very established communities around the world
0: I think we do I think we are doing it we're reaching people but I think we're not reaching enough people especially when it come to uh, real content and I think that's why I like your work with um, I know that you are you know you also have another hat as a, as a philanthropist and and you work you help communities in in South Africa. I saw that you help uh, you know an organization called rich uh, trust and and you know, for the literacy and numeracy. and mm-hmm. that that was I was really impressed with, with that. And I think that's that's one example, for example, of enriching our people. For me, it's not always the news, the media, the the conversation because you and I mm-hmm. are in a level where when we want to get information to be, shared we know where to go and how to get it you know we can change our notification we we can choose now what to read and what to what to, what you know what what information we can get but I think the the marginalized communities don't have this choice they just get as much as they can but I think if we are able to develop uh you know apps and and solutions like you know the rich trust you know where you sit as a you know, as a non-for-profit uh, board member. It's really fascinating. I was really impressed by it. Can you just tell me a bit about, you know, your, the, the, the work you do around Philanthropy and in helping communities in South Africa?
1: Well, you know, I'd like to respond to what you're saying about that because you're absolutely right. You know, the news media isn't the best way to reach people. And um, one of the lessons that we've learned at REACH that's really surprising and interesting to me um, is the importance of combining tech, the virtual world, with the real world, um, and, and I mean this even in I, even in uh, a lockdown situation. Okay, so what the Reach Trust does, in short, is it develops very lightweight mobile applications uh, to reach uh, disadvantaged and rural communities around South Africa. Um, People that are digitally excluded, generally speaking, uh, that don't have access to uh, things like textbooks, reliable teaching and learning resources, and that kind of thing. Um, and we help people find employment. Uh, you know, and and we we reach uh, ten million plus people every year. So it's it's doing a very good job, and the whole idea is technology for reach. But here's the surprise: this is the most surprising thing that I've learned um, uh, in the work. So when we first incorporated, uh, one of the apps that we developed was um, designed to essentially replace the school teacher in a way, because we had we had an educational crisis in South Africa. Textbooks aren't always delivered. Um, low motivation among teaching staff. They don't show up at work. Um, and yet, education is more vital than ever before. So we rewrote the entire South African school syllabus Put it on a lightweight mobile app, gamified it so that people could earn points and get badges and level ups by doing their homework on the application, and even partnered with a local retailer so that people can earn. Um, vouchers that they can use for food and cleaning products and that kind of thing for the home so that parents would give the kids time to work on this because essentially they can go, because parents were saying, you know, we need help around the household and that kind of thing, you don't have time to study. So everything was there, including the we thought the parental incentive. So anyway, we launched it. Huge fanfare on TV, media loving it, and we got uh, over a million downloads right out the bat. And then six months later, reviewing the stats, we only had 3% of the signed up users still active on the application, despite all of that. And everyone that looked on it, it was like absolutely superb. And it looked superb, but in reality, people weren't sticking with it. And Mm. the reason why is that learning is hard. Learning is hard. hard. It's not just a game. You actually have to sit down and do your homework and points and badges done by some app and um, can be incentivizing, but for the kind of deep thinking and engagement to get through school syllabus, you need a teacher. You need someone who's going to love you, that's going to see you, that's going to hold you to account. It's so much more than just about information transfer. And so, mm. and, and we learned that the hard way. So we rewrote the application and we focused it on the teachers to help make their work and lives a bit easier. So still doing the syllabus, but give it, keep giving them. Ways to engage with their students, so you know, games them, to play, yeah, empowering them and putting putting technology in their hands. You know whether they've got textbooks or not, and everything changed overnight. The stickiness, the results, the impact, and of course for us then the funding because when you report that kind of impacts, uh, you you get the, the you get funding in. And so, w- w- you know, I, I think that the assumption that technology is going to solve everything um while i do believe that it's it's true to some extent you've got to challenge your assumptions you know human beings are vitally important as part of this and i i learned from that technology needs to be in service of the human rather than the human in service of technology and man teachers a thing.
0: It's really fascinating you said because you and I both sit on the prestigious global teacher prize and, and is, you know, yes. you know it I was so important. I never had a, unfortunately I never had a chance to have a teacher but I really love teachers and I think I love what you said earlier about reach as well because we are trying to get our young girls and boys across the world to have access to content and, and we are building our first ever I'm the code app, uh, you know, this year, hopefully we're going to launch it as well.
1: Wow, wow, okay. um, But
0: I think what is really fasc- fascinating is that we, what we've learned over the years is that, you know, content, it's only content just doesn't matter. Mm. But how do you make sure... Uh, you know, we get more girls and boys having access to it as well. But understanding the context, helping the teachers. Yes, the context. That was quite a yeah. That was quite that was quite interesting. But at the moment, you know, we really need to do more for marginalized communities. And our team for this season is inclusion. I really want to make sure that people are included into the conversation. We include boys and girls from marginalized communities. As you and I know, for decades we've been talking about how do we do inclusion. But as a South African, how do we How do you rebuild the inclusion with what is all going on right now? You know, we have discrimination in South Africa, discrimination in other countries. How do we do that? Mm.
1: And it seems like it's getting worse. I I haven't seen stats around this, although I did look at these SDG indicators and I saw that inequality is a rising indicator. Um, And gender inequality and racial inequality is a rising indicator, the last I checked, which was last year early, and I thought I'd just assume that all of these things were moving in a positive direction, but it very much matters who's in charge in the country. Uh, You know, leadership really matters. And the problem is, is that it's so one of the most powerful ways to unite people politically and socially, is to create an other, to create a scapegoat, to create a threat, whether that's uh, immigrants or people of different races um, or income groups or political orientations. So um, I, I think first and foremost, I think leadership matters. I think who's yeah. in charge matters. Um, the lesson from South Africa, I think is always, I mean, I think that's the South African lesson. It's um, leadership matters. You need, you need leaders that are pro-reconciliation, Pro inclusion, um, and you need to be strong. I mean, creating inclusion, I think it isn't it isn't a soft battle. So let's look at Black Lives Matters as an example. People are accusing uh, the Black Lives Matters movement of looting and rampaging and whatnot. But how else do you get noticed when quiet protest isn't having the results that you want? You can see yeah, the yeah. yesterday
0: of the United States, where when the Black Lives Matters were, uh, you know, marching in summer you know you have all the army out and yesterday a couple of days ago you know they didn't even protect the you know the senators that was kind of like fascinating yeah. for me as well
1: yeah and that's not inclusion Sorry. No, the opposite. So, I don't know. I mean, I think de-escalation is my word of the year. I think it's one of my words for the year. It's like kind of how do you de-escalate? I've tried to expose myself to as many different belief systems and political orientations as I can manage, including, in, you know, uh, joining WhatsApp groups across the political spectrum. And it's just I, the more time I spend, I just realize like people are not hearing each other Um and it's very because true. it's become very much <laughs> about identity, and it's a it's a huge thing. I think that I, I think that on the perpetrators, side, of the people who that, perpetrate then? racial injustice, God, it's too bloody complex. I'm going to give my honest honest opinion, like my my amateur opinion, sorry, which is just I think that there's I think that people are scared of losing what privilege they have. To be honest, mm. I think that they mm. see it as a threat. I, mm. I think like. I think that um, men see the attack on patriarchy as a, an attack on masculinity. I think that white people see the attack on white privilege as an attack on, you know, their living situation. And I think instead of understanding that, you know, creating a more inclusive conversation will make everyone better, off, I, I think that it's zero-sum thinking. It's, it's just, it's difficult. I think that people feel threatened. In the Long story short, I think that people feel it's threatened. It's fear, though. It's and I don't... It is fear, but I, but I don't know how else. I think that, but, you know, at the same time, um, I, I also, you know, all of my, all of my black friends, are, they're not saying I'm, I'm angrier than I've ever been. They're just saying I'm exhausted. Mm. We've been saying this for years and years and years, and we're exhausted.
0: I think you are right. You know, we are all tired. But at the same time, I think we need to keep trying. We need to keep fighting because at the end of the day, you know, I was just saying the other day is that I think for many years we did not respect the black excellence. You know, if you have you and I, Mm -hmm. you and I have been in this industry for, for nearly two decades now, for a very long time. But if you really look into the progress of Uh, you know, black communities and and how people are achieving and the inclusion and access, we're still not there. Someone is still holding the power out there, right? Someone is holding the power when it comes to diversity, inclusion. And I think we are... I think that's what I like about the work you do. We hide behind a certain words. You know, diversity was like a big, big thing, uh, COVID-19 started, resilience was, ev- almost, <laughs> literally the word resilience was everywhere. And I think we need to stop really hiding behind those words and actually invest. And as you said, where is mm. the evidence? Where is the evidence-based information? Ah, uh, yes. I, I love yes. that the fact yes. that you, you actually work on that. It's really fascinating.
1: Yeah, look, we we try look, I'm very led by as a communicator, you know, my role is to support leaders that have a vision. Mm. So it's not it's not always to come up with the ideas myself. So I'm very dependent on, you know, someone who knows what the hell they're doing, and then I can get behind them and back a vision if it's credible and if it's you know backed by research and evidence. But all that all the evidence that I've seen is that diverse communities make better decisions. They're yeah. smarter, they innovate better. Uh, so, so even just on an evidence base, maybe it's popularizing that evidence.
0: I agree with you. Do you feel worried about the world we're living in? Uh, you know, with the U.S. having a black vice president, do you think do you think things will get better?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I would have said yes. So, firstly, what I'm what I'm scared of is, uh, strangely enough, complacency. For example, if you look at what happened with uh, Trump supporters who then stormed the Senate yesterday. You know, this was a long time coming. This didn't happen overnight, yep. but suddenly a lot of people are shocked as if it's, you know, as if this is a new thing, as if it this was wasn't prepared. a train wreck happening in slow motion. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, the, the complacency is what leads to things happening like this. If you look at COVID pandemic response, a lot of people, including Barack Obama, had said, you know, the world needs to be more prepared for a pandemic. Uh, People who had been opposing the wildlife trade said it's inevitable that another zoonotic disease is going to emerge. We need to lock down the wildlife trade, um, or this is going to happen again. Uh, so we've got the same with climate change. You know, we need to radically reduce emissions, and it's just I feel like people are far too comfortable with the status quo. You know, I, I, other than that. Um, it's, you know, so that, that's the first thing. Secondly, on the second point, so complacency, I think, is a thing. I think that we need to develop a change fitness. And strangely enough, that change fitness is someone that loves change Um you get used to it and you get more comfortable with it. Mm. And it's, not, you know, I, I don't live my life in fear. I live my life as wholeheartedly as I possibly can. And it's interesting because one of the things that very conservative people accuse progressives of is of being lily livered or scared or fear based. You know, for example, if you look at people that wear masks, they see wearing a mask as a sign of living in fear. Quite the opposite. I wear a mask so that I can go out safely and know, and I know that by doing that, I'm doing a, a form of loving gesture and it makes my heart feel full. So I definitely don't live in fear. Um, so I think that we accuse other people of what we're most afraid of. On the second point on the U.S., having a black vice president, if I hadn't read Barack Obama's book recently, I might have gone, no problem. It's a great sign that the world is moving forward. But then reading Barack Obama's book, I realized how threatened so many people were by having a black U.S. Mm. president. And I think that it's going to trigger a lot of people. And I think that there's going to be people that are going to be triggered and probably- Uncomfortable. Uh, you're uncomfortable and I think Kamada Harris is going to be scapegoated and they're going to make life harder and it's going to radicalise people, I think, in some way. I don't know. But like, what can you do? Can you appease people like that? No, you've just got to carry on going forward. That's the march of progress. And I think that's going to make people uncomfortable. And I think it's a, the a job of communicators like me uh, and the millions of other people that work in this space, and I'd encourage more people to come into in- impact communications like I do. Yeah to create inclusive conversations, to create conversations that aren't hostile, and that don't raise hostility, but conversations that create a sense of um, oneness and togetherness and involvement.
0: Someone told me the other day, uh, why do you think people are scared of Kamala Harris? Why do you think people are scared of black excellence? I said, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's because I think if you are if you are a black woman like me and you know, you work so hard for decades and decades, no one has recognized your value. And suddenly you become excellence at talking, at doing what you do. Of course, you're going to intimidate people. But I think as society, we need to find a way to include people. You know, it doesn't, because mm-hmm. you and I, we're the same. We've been, probably we have different powers. But at the same time, we can see progress. We know we, we want to make sure more girls have access to computers. You know, you want to reach more people for literacy and numeracy. So I I think it's just as you said, it's fear. And I'm hoping that as Kamala Harris and Biden, you know, take power. I really hope that they can we can temper
1: people, you know,
0: fears and and probably give them more access. People also need need more, I think.
1: Mm. She's gonna be a great role model for so many people. She already is.
0: Yeah, I'm sure I'm so I was so excited about her. I posted something about you know, I love the way she wears jackets, you know. Anyway, we talked about mental health, and, and you just mentioned, you know, having a background, your family, having that, your father. But you always talk about mental health and self-care. Why do you think this is important now, especially with leaders like us in our generation? You know, you and I are very privileged to be part of the World Economic from which I call the 1% of the world, maybe. We we have access, we have connections, as we discussed earlier. How do you make sure we're now in our 40s? How do you make sure we take care of our health? To make sure we don't overburn.
1: Very important not to die up doing the good work, because we need we need leaders, uh, we need people to you know have the energy to lead. Um yeah, you know, I, I remember there's there's a TED Talk by Daniel Goleman where he talks about um, they replicated the study of the Good Samaritan. Um, they, so they, these theology students had to study the parable of the Good Samaritan and then um, they had to go and deliver a sermon based on it. And they put one group under time pressure and they let the other group um, they gave the other group a bit more time. You know, So one group, let's say you've got two minutes to get to the lecture hall, time pressure. The other group, you've got 15 minutes until you've got to get to the lecture hall. And A hundred percent of the people that were under, and what they did is that they placed someone who was in clear distress and physical pain in between the preparation venue and the place where they had to deliver the sermon. In other words, replicating the exact situation that happened with the Good Samaritan. So anyway, these theology students are hence full of the story of the Good Samaritan where someone stopped and took care of someone who was struggling on the roadside. 100% of the students that were in a rush walked past the person that was suffering. And something like close to 100% of the people that weren't in a rush, they're full of the idea of the Good Samaritan, they stopped and they took care of the person that was in physical distress and got them to health and safety before they went and delivered the lecture. I feel like if we burden our lives too much, we miss out on so many opportunities for kindness and goodness and we become transactional. And I think it's a responsibility that we have to make sure that we are in a space, that we have the mental and psychological space in our lives um, to be kind, not just in our interactions, but in our thinking. And I think that uh, I think that inclusiveness, especially when it's coming from a position of power, needs to be imbued with a spirit of generosity, which mm. comes from having an inner sense of abundance.
0: No, no, that's absolutely right. So what would you say to your younger self? I think you are proud of yourself and I you know your family and everyone, I think you've done amazing work. But if you go back a little bit, you know, your childhood, that hustling. Uh, you know, having something and not having. So you understand the power of loss, not having much, uh, but, you know, working hard to make sure you have everything.
1: Oh, I had this conversation with one of my team members yesterday who is so bright and so talented. And she said, uh, you know, I'm giving her gradually more responsibility. And she said to me, um, you know, I, I just want to pace myself. I don't want to take on a role before I'm ready for it. And, you know, and I encourage you to put one foot in front of the other. You know, don't peak too soon. Um, with me, I lost a lot of years because I had a bit of luck early in my career and I had a breakout success thanks to my uh, getting involved in the world of technology and everyone you know, was telling me I'm amazing and brilliant and talented, and you know, you you know, in your heart of hearts, that nothing's really changed. One part of you wants to believe that, and you know, um, but what happened is that I that I isolated myself and I became unable to admit mistakes publicly. And so it became very difficult for me to ask advice. It became very difficult for me even to invest in learning because I was so invested in creating this perception of confidence and this perception of competence. And so there's this thing that they said, you know, don't peak too soon. Or if you do get a chance of success, don't be afraid of asking for help. Don't feel the need to have to create the perception of perfection in your career there's something very powerful about achieving what you do whether it's a lot of success or ordinary level of success and being able to own both your successes and your failures and carry on moving forward if you if you you know no career uh is created in isolation even great genius um is surrounded by other people who've enabled you and i think that that the understanding that you are who you are because of the community of supporters ranging from your friends to your parents, to your siblings, to industry mentors and advisors, and even your collaborators and competitors. Um, uh, That if you can learn from everyone, uh, that's going to help you move forward. And if you can, uh, but that does require humility, you know, don't always be in this. uh, So in other words, don't always be in the space of, giving advice all of the time, which you can hear I'm in the space of now. And, then, and I went into that space too soon. So don't be so quick to move into a position of authority. Give things good time. And I wish I'd done that because it wouldn't have impacted on the success at all, but it would have helped my stress levels, would have helped my pressure levels. It would have helped me learn faster and it would have avoided some very bad financial decisions that I made. Very bad financial it's decisions. It's
0: fascinating you said that because I said to my mentees all the time and I think one of the things I've learned through, the, through this conversation as well is that you cannot give what you don't have right um mm-hmm. if you try I, I learned this um if you try to give what you don't have you become a thief wait until you're ready but not right now I see people like trying to be mentors and try to do so many things yeah. for others trying to fix the world you know but you know and I, yeah. one of the things I've learned is to you know wait until you are ready to, mm. to start giving. Otherwise you become um what happened is I think the word you you mentioned earlier, I will probably say pride is you know sometime because you you've achieved so much that you you are proud to ask for help because everyone is expecting you to be the best in the world and everyone is expecting mm. you to be the smartest one. Uh, you know i love japan and uh, i've been yes. uh, talking about japan all the time and one of the thing i i like about what they do is the um, something i call ikigai now i'm i'm recording videos ah, yes. called ikigai guidance i know you love what you do but can you tell us what are you really good at
1: oh wow <laughs> <laughs> i'm really good at creating communities strange Like i will give you a little example it's weird it's like a hidden talent um we got a rescue dog a little whippet that had such difficulty dealing with other dogs because she was attacked, you know, when she was a puppy, obviously. And by the time we got her, she'd have lots of bite marks on her. And what I did is that I created a meetup for uh, for shy dogs. So it's the shy dog social society. And we started meeting in a park every Sunday and people with their shy dogs like whippets would come and these little gentle animals would learn to play together. and. This is this has turned into a whole thing, and people meet in multiple locations now, and no one even knows that I started it. These people like I, I'm very likely involved now, if at all. And it just it runs in itself, and <laughs> so I, I, I guess I'm sharing. <laughs> Can I ask you the same question? So I want you to be put on the spot. you saying that you what that am you're I good at? Good at?
0: I think I am good at now now I'm growing up. I mean, ask asked me this 20 years ago, I wouldn't know, but now I'm 46 years old. but what I, what I will say is I am good at connecting my heart with uh, other people's heart. Um, oh, wow. I try to I try to understand pain. Uh, I think you and I have been through this when when you understand pain, loss and gain. Because we are in a position where you and I, we can talk to kings and queens and president whenever we want, but at, at the same time, we've been through loss, we've been through pain, we've been through things that in, internally we had to fight and battle it to be out there. So, and I can I understand people. What I'm good at, I think, and what I is connecting my heart to someone, you know, oh. to someone else. Yeah, I think I'm good at. It. One more bonus question for you. What do you love doing? What I mean by that is what is the reason for you to jump out of bed every single morning?
1: Oh well that's look um, there's this there's, there's so much. I let me let me let me give two cracks at that. I love my morning ritual. So if you literally want to take morning, I wake up every morning and I clear my head oh I listen to so I'm, not, I'm, I'm a bit bad with it I put it on and I listen to BBC World Service like while I'm making my coffee and I feed my dog Alan and, then you, yeah. I, <laughs> and then I sit for 20 minutes in complete silence and it gives me so much joy and then I go and I wake up my fiance with some coffee and we talk about her dreams and whatever emerged for me in out of the silence and um, you, you know, I wake up early enough that there's that amount of time in my day to do that every day. And it fills me with joy like, I don't know, like nine days out of 10. Um, you know, the morning is one of the few times that you can actually control, you know, um, if you get up one time. But yeah, so it's, it's, it's honestly connecting in silence. Uh, one of the most joyful moments of my life every day.
0: That's really amazing. What do you think the world needs right now?
1: Oh, man. Well, now you see you've cued me because you said that you connect with people's hearts. We could all do it with a little bit more heart-centeredness. I think that we live far too much in our heads. Um... You know, I think that when you're in a rush, you get into your head and when you're under stress, you can actually feel your chest shutting down. So I think, uh, you know, I think that um, we could all do a little bit more to nurture, not just love for families, but love for strangers um, and love for the environment. And in particular, uh, love for our fellow creatures and environment. Um, so that that the world could do with a lot more of.
0: Well, Dave Duarte, you are so amazing. I am so happy to have you on this podcast. I mean, we can carry on until tomorrow, but <laughs> thank you so much for coming to the I Am the Code podcast. I'm so happy to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dave Duarte, for coming. Thanks for you. I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Dave. He's an awesome guy. I just love him dearly. Truly, truly powerful man. You know, one of the things I've learned this week is that creating impactful campaigns can really change lives. I think we don't think about creating campaigns so far with social media and, and all of the Facebook stuff we have is, is creating, bombarding people with messages, but we need to start creating campaigns that uh, can change their lives. Also writing and making stories to inspire the world will be absolutely crucial this year. One of the thing I've learned yesterday is I got to see this young woman on TV. Her name is Amanda Goldman. I was like, what? She has become the youngest poet ever to perform on a presidential inauguration. I mean, it's like, the, when, when she was speaking, I was shaking. I said, where did you get these words from? Amazing oratory, beautiful tone, really powerful poet and an activist. I mean, you have to check her out, please check her out. She said that we violated the power of words. And I think she's, she's right. For the last couple of years, we've been saying anything we want, whatever we want, how we want, it doesn't matter no consequences just say it and go and I think we need to start really thinking very carefully um, you know how do we hold ourselves accountable but also how do we make sure that we just don't say whatever we want to say we need to be careful because we have young people listening and you know thinking and looking at us it's really important that we really be careful we must be careful on what we say we can do better than this anyway you have been listening to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, Marie Mjarne. Please come back soon for another I Am The Code episode. Remember to subscribe and follow us. We're a very small team dedicated to making the world a better place by creating inspiring content for people who want to be better and do better. Please come and help us. Donate to I Am The Code and follow us on social media. We are all over the place. Thank you so much. Spread the world. Spread the love. Build inclusion. And I will see you again very, very soon. Thank you so much
1: and goodbye.